Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are continuing our series in the book of Ezra, and today's episode is entitled A Series on Hatred, Ezra chapters 7 through 9. There is an overwhelming amount of hatred from Christians in America today. For that reason, we are doing this series on hatred. And when we talk about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they are capped with two horrific acts of hatred. And so this series is designed to talk about why we are tempted to hate and how we can best avoid the temptation to hate another human being. Because my brothers and sisters, we are called to love one another and hatred for the other always gets in the way of that. So today we're going to look at Ezra chapters seven through nine. But to understand what happens there, we have to look at a story that happens much earlier in the Bible. Because if you don't understand this story that happens before Ezra chapter nine, then you will never understand Ezra chapter nine. So we need to go back to Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and specifically Numbers chapter 25. Now a bit of backstory on Numbers 25, sometime around the year 1900 BCE, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites after they immigrated to their country. This enslavement goes on for 400 years before the Israelites cry out to their God and God intervenes and miraculously liberates the people of Israel with a mighty hand. God leads them into the wilderness to a place that is called Shittim. And while they are at Shittim, there is a story that unfolds that is in Numbers 25. Now here, we need to know about two other locations. To the north is a place called Moab, and to the south is a place called Midian. We read in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, While Israel was staying at Shittim, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of the north of Moab. These sexual relations inspire God to have a conversation with Moses. And in verse 4, God says to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and impale them in the sun before the Lord, in order that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Now Moses hears this order from God and turns to the leaders of Israel and says, Each of you shall kill any of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, which is the God of Moab. Then in verse 6, the narrator tells us, Just then one of the Israelites came and brought a Midianite woman into his family. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the Israelites, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So here is an Israelite who has married a woman from the south, and he marries her right in front of Moses. Verse 7, the narrator continues. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he got up and left the congregation. Now, it's very important to understand who Phinehas is. Phinehas's grandfather, Aaron, is the high priest and the brother of Moses. So Phinehas is the great nephew of Moses. Phinehas had heard this directive from Moses and decides to do something about it when he sees this Israelite marrying a Midianite. 
In verse 8, we read, Taking a spear in his hand, Phinehas went after the Israelite man into the tent and pierced the two of them, the Israelite and the woman, through the belly. Now, it's here that we read about information that we did not know before. The narrator tells us, So the plague was stopped among the people of Israel. Nevertheless, those that died by the plague were 24,000. Now, we were unaware up until this point that there was a plague, but according to numbers, there was a plague that was stopped when Phinehas murdered this Israelite man and his brand new bride. Now, upon this murder, God is once again inspired to speak to Moses. God says to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites by manifesting such zeal among them on my behalf that in my jealousy I did not consume the Israelites. Now, zeal is another way of saying passion. And God admires and appreciates Phinehas' zeal or passion for God's commandments. God then continues saying to Moses, Therefore say, I hereby grant him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and for his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Now, when I read this story, there's something inside me that says, wait a second. Phinehas is the hero in this story? Phinehas is the guy who committed the double murder, I remind you. And here we have a story about God saying, this man, Phinehas, this murderer, did exactly what I want my followers to do. It gets even weirder when you keep reading. In Numbers 25, 14, we read, The name of the slain Israelite man who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, head of an ancestral house belonging to the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, daughter of Zur, who was the head of a clan, an ancestral house in Midian. Now, it's here that two people, the students of the word and the viewers of the movie Prince of Egypt, say, wait, 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 wait a second. Isn't Moses married to a Midianite? His wife, Zipporah, she's from Midian, isn't she? And the answer is yes. Moses is in a marriage that God apparently detests. But his great nephew doesn't murder him and his wife when they are in a tent. As we continue to read in verse 17, things get even stranger. God speaks to Moses once again and says, Harass the Midianites and defeat them, for they have harassed you by the trickery with which they deceived you in the affair of Peor, and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister. She was killed on the day of the plague that resulted from Peor. And God asks Moses to declare war on his wife's people. Now, this is a bizarre and difficult story to read. But what I want you to come away from this story with 
is noticing how the actions of Phinehas are not condemned in this story. Instead, the actions of Phinehas are celebrated. That's really important because about 500 years later, we're introduced to a priest in the book of 1 Samuel. This priest's name is Eli, and he has two sons, the first of which is named Hophni, and the second of which is named Phinehas. Now, Hophni and Phinehas are deemed to be bad priests later on in 1 Samuel, but what's important to know is that Israelites were still celebrating Phinehas so much that they were naming their sons after him. Why? Because according to the story in Numbers, God looks at the zeal of Phinehas and says, this is the passion I need to see from you when you follow me. Not only that, but sometime around the same time, we come across a song that celebrates the actions of Phinehas. This song is found in Psalm 106. When the psalmist writes these words, then they attached themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and interceded, and the plague was stopped. And that has been reckoned to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. 500 years after the life of Phinehas, his country and culture still celebrates him as a hero. Now, about 400 years after the life of Eli and that psalm was written, we find ourselves in 586 BCE. This is 900 years after the story of Phinehas. In 586 BCE, Babylon comes in and destroys Judah, where Jerusalem is, and forces the living survivors to come back across the desert and live in exile in Babylon. This goes on for 47 years until Persia rises to the east, shows up and defeats Babylon and liberates the Jewish people and says, you are free to go home as long as you pay your taxes. So the Jews who are living in exile cross the desert again in 539 BCE. They return to Jerusalem and there is this half-liberation they are living in. Yes, they are free people, but the taxes they have to pay to Persia are rather high, which raises the question, why are we still paying taxes if God is all-powerful and all-loving? So the dominant question of this era is the question, are we still the people of God? Because if we are still the people of God, then why doesn't God liberate us fully from the Persians. This question echoes around for the next eight decades. Then in 458 BCE, we are introduced to a man named Ezra who is living in Babylon. Now Ezra is a Jew, but his family did not return when Cyrus liberated them. And so Ezra has known only Babylon and we meet him in Ezra chapter seven with the following verses one to six. We read, after this, in the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meritoth, son of Zerariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abushah, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of the chief priest Aaron. This Ezra went up from Babylon. 
Now, if you aren't paying close attention, you can miss that third to last name when Ezra identifies that he is a son of Phinehas, the man who committed the double murder in Numbers 25. This is extremely important for what Ezra does in chapter 9. Now, in verse 6, we read, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord of God Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. So the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, sees Ezra, who has grown up in his court, and says, I'm going to write you a letter. And this letter will tell people that I have given you immense power. Not only that, but Artaxerxes says, I will also give you an immense amount of money to go back to Jerusalem and restore the city. Then Artaxerxes turns to Ezra and says, by the way, Ezra, you don't have to pay any taxes. Now it's here that someone might ask, well, why doesn't Ezra have to pay taxes? The answer is very simple. Artaxerxes is placing Ezra in power, and he wants to make sure that the power in Jerusalem is always allegiant to Persia, always says good things about Persia. And so by ensuring that Ezra can bypass all taxes, Artaxerxes is essentially saying, well, Ezra will always be loyal to Persia because he has a sweet deal. We cannot forget this as we read the book of Ezra because Ezra is a compromised religious official. Now, in response to receiving all of this power and all of this wealth and this ability to be tax-exempt, in chapter 7, 27 and 28, Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord. Of course he does because things are looking pretty good for Ezra. So with money and power, Ezra tries to rally the remaining Jews who are living in Babylon together and says, come together, everyone. We need to go back to Jerusalem. So he gets a group of Jews together. And as they are leaving, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, says to him, do you want a military escort? Ezra says, no, God will protect us. And for four months, Ezra leads about 4,000 people across the desert back to Jerusalem. He then arrives at the temple in Jerusalem in chapter 8, verses 33 to 36. He offers sacrifices and remains silent for three days. And after three days of silence, Ezra chapter 9 unfolds. When the leaders of Jerusalem see this new Persian slash Jewish leader come into their court, they approach him with a problem. The leaders say in verse 1 of chapter 9, Ezra, the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Thus the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the officials and leaders have led the way. 
So these leaders in Jerusalem see Ezra and they say, we've got a problem. Our Jewish men are marrying foreign wives. In response to this, Ezra, the descendant of Phinehas, writes these words. When I heard this, I tore my garment and my mantle and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Now the word appalled is from the Hebrew word shamaim. And shamaim means to experience desolation. We then read in verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat shamamed until the evening sacrifice. Ezra sits quiet for an entire day after yelling and pulling out his hair when he hears that interracial marriage exists in Jerusalem. Verse 5, at the evening sacrifice, I got up from my fasting with my garments and my mantle torn and fell on my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God and said. And for the rest of the chapter from verse 6 on, Ezra prays a prayer to God. Now it's important to note that Ezra is a priest and a priest's role in Jewish society is to represent the people to God. And so when Ezra prays, he is praying on behalf of the Jewish people to God above. His prayer begins, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. He then talks at length about the guilt of Israel before wrapping up his prayer in verse 13, 14, and 15, which read, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you destroy us without remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are just, but we have escaped as a remnant and is now the case. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can face you because of this. And it's here that we hear a prayer of confession from Ezra. And the thing that Ezra confesses to is the fact that there are people in Jerusalem who have married foreigners. Today, we call this interracial marriage. And Ezra confesses that they are guilty of interracial marriage, which raises a bigger question. Is interracial marriage a sin? Now, you may have your own answer, but it's important for us to acknowledge that Ezra would say to us, of course, interracial marriage is a sin. And if we were to ask Ezra, how do you know that interracial marriage is a sin? He would say, because I read the Bible. 
And the Bible is filled with all kinds of verses that tell us that interracial marriage is a sin. Now, most Christians here would say, really, Ezra? The Bible condemns interracial marriage? Where does it condemn this action? Ezra would turn to you and say, well, Genesis 24 and 28, Exodus 34, Numbers 25, Deuteronomy 7 and 23, Joshua 23, Judges 3, 1 Kings 11, Ezra 9 and 10, Nehemiah 13, and Psalm 106. He would point to all of those and say, see, it's pretty clear that interracial marriage is not what God wants you or I to do. So Ezra would tell us that interracial marriage is a sin because the Bible tells us so. But this is strange because if you know me, you know that I have no problem with interracial marriage because I'm in one. My wife, Kimmy, is Filipino. And there are all these verses that talk about the pitfalls and problems of interracial marriage. And I basically looked at them and said, eh, whatever. I mean, it can't be that big a deal, right? Not only that, but last year I officiated a wedding, an interracial marriage between Ariana Cassiano and Adam Washington. And then after doing that wedding, shortly after that, I offered Adam a job and said, why don't you come to Paradox and we'll both disregard the Bible together. Now it's here with the obvious condemnation of interracial marriage that you would assume that as a pastor and an interracial marriage that I would get questions about marriage all the time. And I will tell you that I do get questions about marriage all the time, but they're not the questions that you would expect. Because the question I get about marriage all the time is quite simply this. Craig, how can you honestly support same-sex marriage when it is so clearly condemned in the Bible? And it's here that I would look at the person asking this question and I ask them, is same-sex marriage a sin? And they would say, of course same-sex marriage is a sin. And I would say, well, how do you know it's a sin. And they would say, well, because I read the Bible and the Bible condemns it as a sin. And I would say, where does it condemn same-sex marriage as a sin in the Bible? And people would say, well, there's Genesis 19, Leviticus 18 and 20, Judges 19, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. And if somebody pointed out those seven passages to me, I would say, huh, that's a lot less verses condemning same-sex marriage than the verses that condemn interracial marriage, of which I am part of right now. <laughs> and when you compare and contrast same-sex marriage and interracial marriage in 2019, we have to be honest about the fact that Christianity in 2019 tells us that interracial marriage is acceptable and that same-sex marriage is evil. But you have to admit that you cannot point at a same-sex marriage and say that's an unbiblical marriage without also pointing at interracial marriages and say that's unbiblical too. In fact, interracial marriage is more unbiblical than same-sex marriage. And what I find fascinating about this journey through Christianity is that no one, no one has ever called me on my unbiblical practice of interracial marriage. 
And so I'm waiting for someone to instead ask me the question, how can you honestly be in an interracial marriage when it is so clearly condemned in the Bible? Well, it's here that I would say, well, where does it say that interracial marriage is a sin? And someone would point to Ezra chapter 9, and I would say to them four simple words, Ezra is a racist. Now, the word racist is thrown around a bunch today, so I think it's important that we define it. My favorite definition of racist is from Ijema Aluo, who says that racism is any prejudice against someone because of their race when those views are reinforced by systems of power. That's a very important distinction that most people who are in power misunderstand. So let's return to Ezra. Ezra clearly has a prejudice against interracial couples. Not only that, but Ezra is backed up by the Persian Empire and has all kinds of power. Because of that, we have to remember that Ezra was a compromised religious official with a racist agenda. Now, the story of Ezra teaches us how the Bible and religion can be used to enable racism and hatred. After all, you have this priest who is telling every person around him that all interracial marriages are a sin. And if you were to ask him, prove to us that it's a sin, he would cite his distant relative Phinehas and say, because God honored those who murdered people in interracial marriages. Ezra believed his racism was justified because his religion, tradition, and family had always told him that people outside of his tribes were abominations. And here you have this story a thousand years before the life of Ezra that is celebrated and championed and sung about and held up as the way to follow God. All of a sudden, it comes crashing into reality a thousand years later, and Ezra says, well, I got to do just like my family's always told me to do, and condemn and persecute these interracial marriages. And so Ezra uses his family name and his religion and his nation to justify this condemnation and judgment of interracial marriages in his day. Now, if someone's asking me the question, Craig, how can you be in an interracial marriage when the Bible condemns it? Look at Numbers 25. Phinehas murdered this couple. God said, I love this man's zeal. You can't argue with that because this is the word of God, Craig. I would say, well, I'm going to argue it. Because Phinehas committed a racially motivated double murder. And his great uncle is the most powerful man in the land, Moses. And what I believe happened when I read this story is that Phinehas is a radical racist who can't stand the thought of interracial marriage. So he picks up a spear and murders two innocent people. Moses now doesn't want to condemn his brother's grandson so he tells all the people around him that God wanted Phinehas to commit this act. 
And because Moses is the one who is telling the story, he says, oh, and by the way, there was a plague that stopped. And it stopped because the actions of Phinehas were ultimately good. For me, the story of Numbers 25 is about how Moses used the name of God to justify a violent act of racist hatred in order to protect his family. Now, you may disagree with me, and that's fine. We welcome disagreement on this podcast. But may I then ask you, how do you justify Phinehas' double murder? And somehow have a God who is all loving and all powerful look at that double murder and say, well done, Phinehas, I appreciate your zeal. Now, when most Christians hear me tell the story of Phinehas from this angle, there is often a great discomfort they feel. This discomfort comes from the fact that Christians feel like they need to defend Moses because Moses, in our minds, is one of the heroes of our faith. And we have to protect the reputation of our heroes in order to protect the reputation of our religion. But when we look at the brutal murder that Phinehas committed, the question I have to ask you is, does this action need to be protected? Because this is racist hatred. And the reason we try to protect someone who's committed a double murder is because we want so badly for our religion and our heroes to be good. And this teaches us something about hatred. Because we often fall into the temptation to hate others because we possess an intense desire to protect the innocence of our heritage, of our religion, of our Bible, and of our country. We want so badly for Moses to be the good guy all the time that we look at the act of Phinehas and say, well, I mean, did they deserve it? Because it sounds like God warned them, so this murder was actually justified. We want so badly for the heroes in the Bible to always present the right picture of God. We want so badly for Moses to never make a mistake. But he makes all kinds of mistakes, doesn't he? We want so badly for everything that we hold dear to us to be unquestionably good when there are moments that it isn't always innocent. Which brings us to today and the hatred that Christians in America hold in our current state. Just a few weeks ago, we witnessed a horrific action of hatred in El Paso, Texas. A 21-year-old white male drove to Walmart in that town and opened fire. He killed 20 other people. He was specifically targeting Latinx people. In his manifesto, he expressed frustration of the infestation of Latinx people in America. And in, in order to protect his country, he only had one choice, which was to murder them with a gun. 
Now this idea that Latinx people are invading or infesting the United States of America is often spoken about by white Christians today. And I think that we have got to hold our religious tribe to higher standards. Language of hatred toward Latinx people is not the way of Jesus. In fact, followers of Jesus must work to dismantle this hatred that America harbors toward Latinx people. And I think what's so disheartening is that often Christians view this work of dismantling hatred as like a side quest or a bonus level. But the fact is, this is the real work of Christianity. And we love to tell ourselves story about how America is good all the time and all the time America is good. But when you look through history, there are some good things America has done and there are some not so good things. And we have to stop being so obsessed with our country's innocence that it does not allow us to change. We need to be honest that our history of this country is filled with white supremacy. And this shooter, this awful, horrific act that happened in El Paso was the result of a white supremacist who thought he was better than Latinx people because of the tone of his skin. And if we can be honest about how white supremacy is intertwined with our country's history, then I think that we can finally start to avoid hatred and open ourselves to love. So followers of Jesus don't work to maintain the reputation of America. We work to dismantle hatred toward Latinx people. Followers of Jesus don't work to talk about how the Bible is good all the time. Followers of Jesus work to dismantle white supremacy. Followers of Jesus aren't obsessed with making sure that everyone knows that their religion is good. Rather, followers of Jesus do whatever it takes to dismantle hatred of another human being. Because, my brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ always dismantles our hatred of another human being. May we have the courage to let go of our hatred and open ourselves to love. May you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.